Hello and welcome to See You in Court, the podcast that informs you about the Georgia civil justice system, what it means to you, and how it protects individual rights. This podcast is a collaboration between the Georgia Civil Justice Foundation and the Georgia Institute of Technology. Your hosts are Robin Frazier-Clark and Lester Tate, who are both past presidents of the State Bar of Georgia and currently serve on the board of directors of the Georgia Civil Justice Foundation. And now this episode of See You in Court. Good morning, friends and lovers of the law, and welcome to See You in Court. I'm Robin Fraser-Clark, and with me, as usual, is my stellar co-host, Lester Tate. Lester? Great great to be here today, Robin, and uh, uh, I'm I'm looking forward to this program because uh, uh, instead of cross-examining others, we're going to get to talk some ourselves. That's right. And to tell our listeners today, we have a special program for them uh, in which Lester and I are going to explore a little bit more in depth the concept of justice. It, it, our, our listeners know that we ask every guest as the last question, what is their definition of justice? Uh, what that means, um, their experience with it. And, and we've had some great, great answers. But today we thought that Lester and I would share our combined 67 years of experience in the law practice uh, to talk a little bit about it and share our notions of justice. Yeah, I'm looking forward to this conversation. And the way our program is formatted here, you usually are the one that gets to pop the question to our guest about what is what is justice. So I'm, I'm going to turn the tables on you right okay. off, right out of the block here, Robin, and, and okay. get you to tell me what your your definition of justice is. Well, I see justice uh, as a, a balance. I, I feel it's more of a feeling for me. Uh, but I've, I feel like it's a sense of balance so that when there has been an, an, um, an in, injustice done, it knocks the uni- universe out of balance. It, it, it whacks it out of balance. And, it, and that sense of, of unbalance exists until something occurs to make the balance go back. In our lives, that means usually a lawsuit and a jury verdict. Uh, and as Ray Persons was talking in our last episode, we respect the jury verdict and usually we, we're, we accept it. Um, so, so in my scheme of things, I, I feel like it's an imbalance in the world. Something unjust has occurred and we need to set it right through the legal process. That's where we come in as lawyers representing clients who have had an in, in, injustice done to them. And then we look to the jury to set the balance straight again, to get it, get the world balanced again through a verdict. I, 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 I agree with that. And uh, a favorite, uh, favorite uh, country saying of mine that I heard a uh, lawyer use many years ago that, you know, particularly in the sense where somebody suffered an injustice, you know, something's happened to them, uh, some tragedy, some, you know, what, whatever has happened to them. Uh, but I, I, I had a uh, friend uh, it was really a friend of mine's father who's sort of a mentor. And he said, what lawyers do is they help people get back like they were before they got like they are. <laughs> and uh, if you think about uh, that, that really is true. You know, people, uh, people are in yep. jail, maybe wrongfully, they want to get out of jail. People are 
Uh, you, you know, in a marriage, they want out of that marriage. They're hurt. They don't want to be hurt anymore. They've been cheated. They don't want to be cheated anymore. It, it really is about sort of restoring uh, some balance and helping them get back like they were before they got like they are. Now, there are limits to that, of course, in the, uh, I, I think, in the uh, uh, metaphysical sense, you know, you, you can't turn back time and give somebody the ability to walk. If uh, they've had their spine severed, you can't raise people from the dead. Uh, but, you know, you're trying to help or make up for uh, the tragedy that has been suffered there. And, you know, I think one of the things I've never had in my office, uh, any place, uh, one of those uh, statues of Lady Justice, you know, with the scales where she's blindfolded and, yeah. you know, kind of, kind of holding it up there. My yeah. favorite Lady Justice, and I've never been able to find one. That I've seen them before. I think maybe the one on the top of the Old Bailey uh, in England has this statue. But I, I don't want blind justice. I want somebody with, with their eyes wide open looking for it. And I want the one that portrays justice, not just with the scales in one hand, but with the sword in the other, that they're willing to go fight for that, to see what's right and to go uh, and fight for that. Yeah. And uh, to help those people get back like they like they were before they got like they are. Right. Well, you, you mentioned um, it, it, you can't bring somebody back from the dead. There's some things that it, it, our system has limits. So uh, we can't wave a magic wand and bring a loved one back from the dead. Uh, but we have money damages and largely what you and I do are represent people who who've something's been done wrongly to them or something wrongfully taken, perhaps a loved one's life. And so we look to the jury in our civil justice system to make up for that through money damages. That's all we can do. It's all our system can do. But I'll share a story with you that happened last week. Um, the case is, is 10 years old, but um, this is an example of money damages where a, a loved one was lost, can't bring her back, but money damaged helped to balance this, this wrong. And it was a case I represented a um, family couple who had lost their daughter, who was a uh, Georgia State Law School graduate. Naira Karimi Manish is her name. And she was on her way to work, uh, getting ready to take a deposition. So brand new law graduate and was rear-ended uh, on like I-85 and killed. And, and the, the reason she was killed, her car, the seat back of her car collapsed, sending her backwards at the same time that her spare tire compartment collapsed. And the spare tire came off the, the hinge that it's on and went going, went forward and hit her in the back of the head. And she had massive brain trauma and died. Horrible, just horrible event. And, you know, you and I meet our clients usually at the worst time in their lives. And I can remember uh, Karel Mahmood, Karimi Manish coming in to talk to me about the case, about, about hiring me. And they're in mourning clothes. They're in black clothes. And it, it was one of the most solemn meetings with a client I've ever had in my life. Well, we uh, brought suit against the manufacturer. It was talking about a products case with Ray. Ray wasn't in, Ray was not defending that case, I don't think. King and Spalding might have. In fact, I think it was King and Spalding. It was one of his partners. Um, but we brought suit against the car manufacturer for negligent uh, seatback failure and 
spare tire compartment failure and we, and we resolved the case after a, a, a long bout of litigation. Um, fast forward to last week, I'm invited to a luncheon in which Carell, the mom, is going to take the money from that settlement and endow a full scholarship to Georgia State Law School and a study room named after their daughter, Naira. So I went to this incredible luncheon, met the first recipient of the, the full ride to law school, met the first recipient, uh, met all the deans and all that. And Carell came in from San Monteo, California, where she's from. And we dedicated the scholarship and this study room that can be converted into a, a mock trial room or a, a moot court room, whatever they want to do. And it's called the Naira Karimi Manish Room at the Georgia State University Law School. Um, I've never had that happen in my career, but I told Carell, the, the people, the, the clients I represent who I see do the best after suffering such a great loss are the people who channel their grief into something like this. And so Carell has channeled her grief into taking money damages and putting them into something positive and good that will have a lifelong effect for folks who, who get that scholarship. And then you think of all the clients, those scholarship recipients are gonna help. Um, so I think that's a great example of our system. It can only deliver money damages, but then those money damages can really make things right. It, it, it absolutely is. And, uh, uh, but you know, my, my story, and you, you've probably heard me tell this story before, uh, but uh, I represented uh, a fellow who was a truck driver. He worked at the grocery store and he was a truck driver. He had two or three different uh, jobs, was married. His wife worked a, 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 an important but low paying job. They had a son, I think was 10 or 11 years old. Uh, his wife went out to help a co-worker decorate for a wedding that they were going to have at a church. And on her way back to work after her lunch hour, there was a stop sign that uh, the Georgia Department of Transportation had left laying in the ditch for weeks and weeks and weeks. She didn't know there was, she needed to stop. Her car was T-boned by a Ford F-150 pickup truck pulling a horse trailer. She died on the side of the road within 15 minutes with a stranger, you know, holding her hand. And it was devastating, you know, for this, for this family. Um, and we went and we, we tried the case and, uh, you know, it turned out that the Department of Transportation had been by that sign like 13 times, you know, in the last several weeks, nobody had uh, put it back up. Uh, we got a verdict of uh, uh, about $1.4 million. And uh, the jury came in, delivered the verdict. And, uh, and my client, who's this big, hulking, uh, just nice teddy bear kind of guy, he's an African-American guy. And uh, he's sitting there beside him, and beside me. And when the jury delivers the verdict, he starts to cry. And I mean, tears, it's not just tears running down his eyes. I mean, he's, he's convulsing in grief, you know, about this. And as you know, Robin, you know, at the end of the trial, you have to pack up your stuff. You have to, you can't really do that to get a verdict because who knows what's going to happen. Yeah. We packed up our stuff. We said goodbye to the judge. We said goodbye to the clerk. We'd been there for a week. We talked to the jurors. And, and fortunately, my client's sister was there and she came up and kind of comforted him. 
and you know, I could sense that he wanted to sort of, you know, be by himself. And so finally, after everything was packed up, we went and got him and, uh, sort of, you know, walked with him down to the door of the courthouse. And he walked ahead of me with his sister and I looked at him and I thought, uh, you know, the department of transportation has a, uh, a board that's elected by the legislature. It's run by a bunch of very important people. The governor has influence over what happens over there. None of them could keep that stop sign up, but this one guy with a lawyer could go into a courthouse. If the courthouse was open to everybody, and I was pretty sure there weren't any more stop signs going to be laying in the ditch, you know, after that. So he made, you know, I think we made a statement about what needed to happen and the level of attention that needed to be uh, uh, paid to that kind of thing. But more importantly, uh, this guy, you know, was taking three incomes to keep that family going. And they had one of them sucked out of there, not just the income, but the love and care and nurturing that a mother would have given them. And so obviously my guy was a great father would want the opportunity to spend more time with his son to make up for the loss of parental time forever. And he was able to do that because mm -hmm. of that money. Mm -hmm. He was able to spend more time with his son. And as you know, in a wrongful death case, the, 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 uh, a verdict is apportioned and, and a later got like to see this got to see the son get his check you know when he turned 18 uh you know for that his portion of that uh but it it made a difference in a family that had been uh terribly struck by terribly struck by tragedy that was not of their own making and it also uh i think uh, you hear people all the time that think that lawsuits are about like a lottery ticket or whatever. And this guy that was sitting at the table crying his eyes out and convulsing would have given twice that amount of money back if he had it just to have his wife back and the mother yeah. of his child. And so it's, uh, uh, you know, it's a, it's, it's a, you know, as I tell my clients, a good case, uh, for the lawyer, which people think is one that's going to pay a lot of money is a bad case for you. You, you don't want it. You know, you don't want these things thrust upon you, but people don't come. Very few people come into law offices really just looking for money. You know, it's because they've suffered some tragedy. Right. Absolutely. And they might, that doesn't mean all of them are entitled to recover either. I mean, you know, sometimes it's, you know, that has to be sorted out. I, I get that. And I thought Ray did a good job on our last podcast of talking about that. But uh, it's, uh, uh, th this is the system we have. And, uh, and it may be the worst in the world, except for all others, but nobody else, you know, you, you, you want to, you want to learn to farm, you come to America, and you want to learn how to have, uh, have justice, you come to an American courtroom. Uh, so true. And it just that that's a great story. I remember when you had that case. I remember when you tried it and it was down in Meriwether County. Meriwether, I knew it was south of Atlanta, Meriwether County. Um, it's a great story because it shows not only our system and a jury hearing the facts, reaching a decision that they feel is just. So not only do you have money damages trying to make justice, um, but I also think the fact that you brought the case and had a representative from the DOT sitting there listening, I think that probably changed their behavior. And so it shows 
not only do you get money damages for your client, but going forward, you may be saving other lives because you've brought a city or a county or a, a, a department to realize, hey, we, we messed up there. We need to change the way we do things. I think you change behavior with lawsuits as well. You don't really get to see that part of it, but I, I do believe that's true. Um, reminded me of a case I had where I represented Again, you know, we we often see parents after they've lost a child. So I deal, I, I have a lot of death cases. So I see parents after they've lost a child. And um, Alan, Alan and Legina Brown lost their son, Joshua. And we sued the Department of Transportation for negligent maintenance and design of a roadway where he, where he went off the road um, and resolved that case against the Department of Transportation. But the point of it was not only did we feel like we changed behavior, Alan Brown lobbied our Georgia legislature and got a law passed called Joshua's Law that requires every teenager to have drive driving training now, uh, which we didn't have before that. And I, I can't tell you how many hours Alan Brown spent on that. But talking again about effecting change through a lawsuit, um, taking your grief and turning it into something positive, using the money obtained in a lawsuit for good, for positive uh, work. That's really a, a, one of the, the great hallmarks of our civil justice system. I, I, uh, and we've talked about it time and we, we, we have alluded to him uh, probably in 80% of our shows, but the, the great Bobby Lee Cook who passed away yeah. uh, last year and was a great uh, mentor of mine and yours and, and uh, many other lawyers. And uh I, we've talked about maybe having a tribute show at one time because he had so many great quotes and so many great things. Uh, but I, I always remember seeing him on a documentary one time. He was talking about being a lawyer and he was talking about trying to achieve justice. Uh, and he talked about fighting in World War. He was in the Navy during World War II and he came back and his generation uh, looked around and there was a lot of things, you know, that were not fair you know, uh, people that needed representation. And I'll never forget this phrase. He said, he said, you know, when I started practicing law, it was all about seeking fundamental fairness, one case at a time. And if you think about like when people go to vote, you know, they want, you know, you know people sometimes I think, think the president's got a gas price button on his desk and, you know, he <laughs> He can send it up or he can send it down or, or you know, whatever. Yeah. Or they want somebody that's going to, you know, support them. You know, the courthouse, when the courthouse is open, that's the only place that you get to walk in. And if it's your case, you're in control of, of, of what you're seeking, you know, at least. And you present your case. You know, it's the only case, you know, we've all voted for people that didn't win. So the person that's representing us, in some some other branch of our government is is the person we didn't choose and and when you go into court you're able to get the lawyer you want uh you know in cases like that and go in there and fight for that fundamental fairness just one case at a time and i think that's a hallmark of democracy that uh that uh is so important and talked about so very little well, it, that that reminds me of of the very famous line from to, to Kill a Mockingbird. In closing argument, where Atticus Finch talks about our Courts system, the great levelers, the great leveler, 
courthouse is the one place where a pauper can be the equal of a Rockefeller. That's right. Uh, I, I just, I love that, you know, so where a one individual citizen can bring a, bring a corporation to bear to its knees. If the, if they've done something negligent, um, that there's no other place where you can do that. Yeah. I thought about, uh, uh, uh in our last podcast, when Ray Persons was talking about the Kuwaiti, Kuwaiti, uh, bank that he represented and how they were amazed with American justice. Uh, one of the stories that Bobby Lee Cook frequently told was when he represented the Carnegie's and the Rockefellers who owned Cumberland Island when the federal government uh, took it by eminent domain. And uh, he, he told the jury, he said, you know, I was talking to my client, Mr. Rockefeller last night, and uh, he was worried, you know, that he might not get justice from a jury down here because he wasn't from around here and because he had lots of money. Everybody knew, you know, how much, uh, how much money he had, but he said, I told the jury, if the U.S. government can do this to a Rockefeller or a Carnegie, think about what they can do to you. And uh, he said that sort of, you know, took the prejudice uh, out of the room. And so, you know, we, we have fairness for we, we have fairness for rich folks, too. We have fairness for big corporations, you know, too. It's not always just for the little fella, uh, but it's for the person who has the case and is able to prove that they have, they have suffered an injustice. Now that, that sounds like that may be your definition of justice, but I haven't really asked you the, the formal question. What is your definition of justice? Um, I, I think my definition of justice in the metaphysical sense is that you get what you get that which you deserve. Uh, and that can be, you, you, when I say deserve, I'm not talking about that you're born into it because I think we're all born with equal rights, but, you know, through your labors, through your work, mm -hmm. through what you do here on the, the time God gives you on earth, uh, you know, to do, uh, I, you know, I, I think getting that which you have earned. Uh, or, and, or conversely, if you've done something wrong. Mm -hmm. getting so how, that that what you deserve for doing right. that as well that's right that's exactly right uh you know there were there there are you know, i've been asked before did i want to be a judge and i, I have no desire to be a judge because i don't there people need to go to the penitentiary i don't really want to be the person sending them and i've got no criticism of the people that need to and, but and some of those people have earned that though they have earned <laughs> yeah. uh, you know the right uh to 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 you know to get that get that uh, life sentence or, right. or whatever. Right. Uh, but, you know, for, I think there are so many injustices and I've, I've told clients this before, you know, my father, uh, when he was younger than I am now, my father died of, of uh, colon cancer, you know, and he didn't smoke or drink or, you know, I, no, no he, di he didn't deserve uh, cancer, you know, but he got it. So there are a lot of injustices in life that are, like I said, sort of abstract injustices that are not perpetrated by human beings or human institutions. And there's no, there's no remedy for that. There's no real fairness in it. But I think that to the extent we're able to make sure that people get what they deserve and are treated the way that they ought to be treated, that's what justice is, uh, you know, sort of, sort of in my book. 
and why it is so important for us to continue to protect the rule of law, rule of law, to stand up for it, make sure our courts remain open uh, to anyone, and and protect our justice system. Um, it's scary what some of our leaders are talking about lately. Um, but we as lawyers, I think, have that duty to protect the rule of law, protect our system. It, it, a lot of people say our systems, it's, 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 uh, you probably know this. It's, it's not the greatest. What's the old saying about it's the worst on earth, except for all others, except Is for that, all the others. I yeah. get, I, yeah, that's, that's what, that's what uh, Churchill said about democracy. You know, he it's said, the worst system, worst system, except for all others. It's flawed, but it's the best one we have. Um, but we got to protect it. Yeah, and I think there's that. I think in that there's this idea that Martin Luther King expressed about the moral arc of the universe is long, but it bends toward justice. And you know, I think we have to sort of reach up and try to try to bend it a little quicker. You know, make it, yeah. make, it make it go, uh, make it go a little quicker. Yeah. Uh, but I've seen a lot of people quoting that saying of Martin, Dr. Martin Luther King since the confirmation yesterday of uh, Justice Katanji Brown Jackson, uh, yeah. our first African-American female Supreme Court justice. So uh, I think a lot of people see her confirmation as that moral arc of justice you're referring to bending. Absolutely. And, you know, we, we, we live in a country where you know, sometimes I think we're going to dive nostalgia because we're always talking about the good old days, you know, like, well, when I was growing up, you know, we, we you know, we had to walk two miles to school up. It was uphill both ways, you know, and that kind of thing. There's a lot uh, about American history, and particularly in the area of justice, not to be proud of, uh, not to be proud of the fact that we had all white juries, not to be uh, proud of the fact that we... Uh, uh, not only didn't let women be lawyers, uh, they couldn't, they couldn't serve on juries. There, there was a judge in Texas, a woman who was one of the first women on the bench, uh, who could preside over the trial when they couldn't have women on a jury. I mean, uh, you know, things like that are, uh, you know, absolutely, uh, incredible. Um, you know, we had a time where, uh, you know, uh, we heard Chris Joyner, who was on one of our prior podcasts, uh, the three death sentences of Clarence Henderson, where in one of the times this guy's uh, prosecuted, you know, Chris tells us that the brother uh, of the judge was the prosecutor. I yeah. mean, you know, just just Talk, talking about the fixes in yeah, just wild, uh, you know, wild things like that mm -hmm. uh, that are that are in our history. And, you know, we've come a long way and we've still got a long way to go and we're never gonna, we're never gonna get it all done, but that doesn't mean you can't stop trying. But I also think too, Robin, you know, you, you mentioned about lawyers and, and us, this is not just a lawyer battle. Uh, you know, when you talk about fighting and dying for freedom, uh, which is sort of a concept. There are plenty of people that are willing to step up, thank God, you know, in our country and serve in the armed forces. Uh, and in times like World War II, you know, where you had the whole uh, civilian population, you know, serving in some way or another to try to defeat uh, an enemy that would take, a, take away your freedom. And they're risking their lives on a daily basis. Uh, and their family members are risking their lives on a daily basis. And 
the only other thing that I know of that a government requires of a, a, a law-abiding citizen in terms of personal service is to serve on a jury because serving on a jury helps bring about justice. And it takes a few days, uh, in some cases, even just a few hours, because you may get struck from that jury. And yet we have scores and scores of citizens who do not, uh, don't, don't want to give, don't want to give a week of their time that involves no risk to life or limb. Right. Cause of justice. And I, I think, I think we got to get excited about justice again, like we yeah. are freedom. I'm hoping post-COVID citizens are getting excited about being jurors again. Um, what what I have found is on the front end during voir dire, you get all kinds of answers where people clearly want out of that courtroom. They do not want to be on a jury. Fast forward through a trial, you're talking to them after a verdict, and and all of them say, that was the greatest experience of my life. Other than my kids being born, that was the greatest experience. I loved it. And if we can just kind of capture that feeling of they feel so empowered and it was so meaningful, you know, I've, I've had jurors cry when they're giving the verdict. They're, they're in tears. It's so meaningful to them. And I wish people in Vaudeer and jury selection would realize this is what it's going to be like. You're going to love this experience and you will never forget it as long as you live. Yeah, I, I agree. Uh, so you gave, uh, I was the president of uh, Southeast American Board of Trial Advocates last year and got you to come down to Florida and give us a great uh, uh, speech about what is justice, where you used a lot of the clips from yeah. our, uh, from our uh, podcast that we've done. And uh, I, I think you got, you put some of those uh, together yeah. Uh, for yeah. us. Yeah. And so, yeah, so for the rest of our, our episode, we're going to share several of those with our, with our listener uh, listeners, but I want everyone to realize what, talking about justice, you've heard our definitions, you're going to hear many of our guests' definitions of justice, um, and then I would encourage you as you listen to develop your own sense, what, what your own definition of justice would be, but, but I focused on different types of justice, and there are many types, uh, and I covered several, but things I want you to, that we're going to focus on with this episode is, is re, a little bit of retributive justice. That's more of the criminal justice system, and you're going to hear a clip about that. Um, restorative justice, which is partly our civil justice system it, through money, money damages. So restoring this sense of justice between the wrongdoer and the person um, who, who's the victim of it. Um, restoring that sense, but restorative justice goes even a step further of healing uh, between the parties. Um, and so we're going to show uh, share a little clip about that as well. Um, and so I just want our listeners to know that there's re retributive justice in our, which is really our criminal justice system. And when you think of retributive justice, that's more like um, the person's like, as Lester said earlier, the person's getting what he's what he's deserved. If he's done something, then this is what he deserves for doing that. Um, that's sort of our punishment system in criminal justice. On the civil side, which is where well, Lester practices both criminal and civil, but I only do civil. But on the, the civil side, where we represent a person who's been wronged, we're asking for money damages uh, to get that balance and get justice back. And, you know, money damages 
includes this sense of um, equality, of fairness, of of morality, of harmony, um, that sort of thing. It's not like punishment. It's just let's restore this sense of justice. Let's get the balance back in place through the award of money damages. So we're going to share some clips about that and then share uh, many uh, uh, of our guests, their own definitions of justice. And then I just would challenge our listeners to be thinking as they listen, what is your definition of justice? Yeah. And I think, uh, you know, one of my favorite, uh, you, you, you haven't asked me if I'm inspired by a particular uh, belief, uh, but it's a common. What, what is your personal motto or tenet or religious faith or whatever? Well, now that you ask, Robin, yeah, uh, it's, uh, I'm, I'm a big fan of the, the Bible verse uh, in Amos 5, which says, let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. I mean, you know, if you compare that to what with a quote I used earlier about Martin Luther King about the moral arc and it bends, you know, and you're yeah. having to work to try to get the moral arc, uh, you know, to bend toward justice. But then you think about that image of, you know, if you were living in a in an Eden-like land where justice just roll like waters, nonstop, roll like waters. And I think when you, you know, when you, when you start listening to these clips, and when you spoke to our audience down at the uh, Southeast Aboda event, uh, and you start listening to some of those clips and seeing some of the things, you know, that are going on, you get the sense that you know, it, it would be great if justice rolled like that, if all these definitions uh, were part and parcel of the kind of justice that that we as human beings were able to get every day. Definitely would make our society better. Uh, and I, I think by the work we do, uh, we're, that's what we're striving for, always trying to right wrongs, make our society better through our civil justice system. I agree. I agree. All right. So here you go, listeners. This is What is Justice. And until next time, we'll, we'll see, see you in court. Hey, guys. This is Raz. I am the producer of See You in Court. And today I am going to be introducing you to each of the clips that Robin mentioned just a moment ago on justice and the different types of justice. If you want to see and listen to the full clips, you can go to cuncourt.squarespace.com and find today's episode, or you can just check it out in the show notes. So clip number one, one type of justice, probably the most people are familiar with, is retributive justice. Our U.S. criminal system is based on a retributive justice model. In this model, the punishment should be proportional to the harm. There is an element of the wrongdoer should get what he deserves or the wrongdoer had it coming to him or her. Here's an example of retributive justice in which Judge Ott from Rockdale County, Georgia, takes on the mantle of King Solomon and wisely handles a sentencing of a man who has just been found guilty of killing his baby, but who still contends he is innocent. Well, I can make a lot of comments on what you said. I can make a lot of comments on the trial, but I know that was just be arguing with you or talking with you. I'll ask you one simple question. You claim you're innocent, so you tell me what sentence the man or woman that you claim did this should receive. If you ever find out who did them, they deserve to be under the jail. Okay, so they ought to get the maximum sentence. Most definitely. Okay. 
on the crime of malice murder, I sentence you to life in confinement without parole. On considering the death of another, I sentence you to 10 years in confinement consecutive or after. Count one. Do you understand each of your sentences? Yes, sir. Clip number two is restorative justice. Uh, another type of justice. Many of our criminal courts in the U.S. are now striving to add elements of restorative justice and forgiveness in their procedures. Restorative justice includes an element of forgiveness, an element of mercy, and an element of morality. It is a theory of justice that emphasizes repairing the harm caused by criminal behavior. It is best accomplished through cooperative processes that allow all willing stakeholders to meet, although other approaches are available when that is impossible. Here's an example of restorative justice. This is Anna Hilaire, mother of Adam Hilaire, who was murdered by two people who set him up using a data, dating app called Plenty of Fish. This trial was known as the Plenty of Fish trial. The jury convicted the defendants of murder. What do you hope this jury does? To me, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter to me. One or the other. It doesn't matter. I don't think I wanted him to get convicted. That's it. Now there's the proof right there. Are you still going to be looking to see a trial for those other co-defendants? I know I saw you share that hug with the mother of Haley Bustos. How do you feel about those others who are not sitting where Andre Warner is right now? Well, we'll see what happens. <laughs> it's coming, you know, it's coming. But like I said, I don't blame the family. The family has no fault. I don't have no ill will against, I don't even have ill will against them. You know, because the thing about it is you got to forgive. And if you don't forgive, you can't move on. You'll be burning inside and dying more inside. I'm already dying, but I have to forgive. I got to, because it's not going to do me any good. It's not going to do nothing good for my family either. So I got to. In this next clip, one of the best examples of restorative justice occurred following the conviction of Amber Geiger for killing Botham Jean. Miss Geiger was a police officer who entered what she believed was her apartment, but it was actually the apartment of Botham Jean. Miss Geiger believed Mr. Jean was an intruder in her apartment and shot and killed him. Miss Geiger's apartment was actually on the floor above Mr. Jean's apartment. During sentencing, the brother of Botham Jean, Brant Jean, forgave Miss Geiger for killing his brother and asked the judge if he could hug Miss Geiger. The judge permitted it. I don't want to say twice or for the hundredth time what you've or how much you've taken from us I think you know that but I just I hope you go to God with all what all the guilt all the, things, the bad things you may have done in the past, each and every one of us may have done something that we're not supposed to do. If you truly are sorry, I know, I can speak for myself, I, I forgive you. And I know if you go to God and ask him, he will forgive you. And I don't think anyone could say it. Again, I'm speaking for myself, not even bad for my family. But I love you just like anyone else. And 
I'm not gonna say I hope you rot and die just like my brother did, but I see I I personally want the best for you. And I, I wasn't gonna ever say this in front of my family or anyone, but I don't even want you to go to jail. I want the best for you. Because I know that's what that's exactly what both of them would want you to do. And the best would be give your life to Christ. I'm not gonna say anything else. I think giving your life to Christ would be the best thing that both of them would want you to do. Again, I love you as a person. And I don't wish anything bad on you. I don't know if this is possible, but can, can I give her a hug, please? Please? Yes. Our final clip today is of poetic justice. It includes an element of irony. Virtue is rewarded and viciousness is punished. It is often accompanied by an ironic twist of fate related to the character's own action. There is often a long wait for poetic justice. One of the best examples of poetic justice is the life of Judge Horace T. Ward, the first African-American federal court judge in Georgia and the first African-American to challenge the racially discriminatory practices of the University of Georgia. We would like to extend an opportunity for a very special guest to respond uh, to the panel. We are pleased, as was noted earlier, to have in the audience today, the Honorable Horace T. Ward. In 1950, Mr. Ward was a resident of the state of Georgia. He was a tax-paying citizen in this state. After completing Morehouse College with a bachelor's degree and Atlanta University with a master's degree, Mr. Ward decided to pursue a legal education at the public tax-supported institution in Georgia. There was one small problem. The university at that time was all white and segregated. As a result of legal maneuvering and various obstructionist tactics to keep him out of this law school. In 1952, Ward became the first African-American to sue for admission to an all-white college or university in the state of Georgia. During his trial, university officials testified that he did not have the mind to study law, nor the ability to practice law. Though his seven-year battle to enter the university was unsuccessful, this man who did not have the mind to study law later completed Northwestern University Law School. And he did not stop there. This man who supposedly did not have the ability to practice law joined the Hollowell Law Firm and helped to win the case that resulted in the desegregation of the University of Georgia in 1961. 
what then went on to a distinguished to a distinguished precedent-setting career as a trial lawyer, as a state senator. He went on to become the first African-American state civil court judge in the state of Georgia. He then went on to become the first African-American superior court judge and later the first African-American federal district court judge in the state of Georgia. Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in welcoming the Honorable Horace T. Ward to make a few comments in response to the panel. President of the University, the uh, sponsors of this program, the Russell uh, officials of the Russell Richard Russell Library, to the moderators and others. Well, I didn't come to prepare to give a prepared speech, and I want to get on with the questions, but I would like to make a few remarks, not so much in response to to what the uh, the panel. The sponsors that the panel have given, but I do want to take this opportunity to uh, thank these four courageous young journalists at the time for the position that they took, which was courageous and and kind of trailblazing, which was completely politically incorrect at the time. Uh, I know that from, uh, from experience. Uh, I had applied over here to the university in 1950, and, and I thought pretty much that I was going to get in without court action because Supreme Court had already ruled in uh, Sweat versus Painter that the University of Texas Law School had to be desegregated. And I thought they'd heard about the decision. <laughs> but... Uh, I was operating under some serious miscalculations. I did not fully, I did not fully understand the political uh, climate at the time. I, I knew, uh, uh, I knew who the governor was, and uh, so that was my my miscalculation. The state officials and the university officials were operating under a serious miscalculation. They did not think I was a serious student a serious applicant to study the law. They thought that I was, or they advocated, or uh, pronounced that I was a foot soldier <laughs> to break down segregation, working for the NAACP, and was being paid for the job. Well, I wasn't being paid by anybody. <laughs> I need to file a claim. <laughs> I need to file a claim if I was supposed to be paid. In addition, when I, when I applied to the University of Georgia, I turned down out-of-state aid. And if I got interest on that now, I'd have a lot of money. <laughs> but I do want to uh, congratulate and, and uh, salute the four editorial writers of the Red and Black for their efforts back in the 1950s. I did not know them personally at the time. Uh, I did not, had not read the articles. As a matter of fact, I was, had been drafted in the Army in, 19, in 1953. But my lawyer... Not Don Hollowell, but A.T. Walden 
told me that he had read some of these articles. Uh, got to know Bill Shipp pretty good over the years because of his work with the Atlanta newspapers as editor, as a reporter and editor. And I got to know Miss uh, Miss Arnold, uh, Priscilla Arnold Davis, through Maurice Daniels' work. Now today I'm pleased to meet the other two. I had seen seen them in Maurice's uh, documentary, Reverend Britton, uh, Father Britton, and uh, Mr. Lundy. I want to thank you for your efforts, and I think you made a difference in what has happened in this state thus far. I would like to just think that this quotation from Dr. Benjamin E. Mays' book, Disturbed About Man, uh, is appropriate for my congratulation and honor to you. And it goes this, thusly, a person has but one life to live, and he or she must respond to the call of his or her duty this day or not at all. The road each person will take will depend upon many factors, but certainly the high road, the low road, and the middle road are available to every person. And which person he or she takes is largely one's own choice. End of quotation. In my opinion, the lives and careers of Bill Shipp, Walter Lundy, Priscilla, Arnold Davis, and Jean Britton show that they have sought to take the high road. Thank you very kindly. To close out this week's podcast, we've put together a compilation of answers from the closing question that Robin and Lester ask every guest. What is justice? First is Mr. Jay Cook of Cook and Tolly LLP. Justice really depends upon your value system. Um, and my value system uh, is based upon fairness. Um, and, and, what the what the uh, justice system what justice does is try to hold people accountable um, and give people redress and a voice to be heard. You know, if you think about the alternative, um, the alternative we've seen in other societies where you know ends in revolution or it ends in um, uh, uh, frustration um, and cynicism. Um, because people are not treated fair becomes a very important part of it. And if you step back from what we do, we are stewards of this justice system. We are the ones who, who have the trust resting in us to make sure that the system does not go away, to make sure that there, there, there's not riots, that makes sure that people can get heard and get compensated. Those are important things for a society. And, you know, ours, um, you know, you know, people will say, well, we've got the best system in the world. Well, it's only about 70% effective as far as I'm concerned. It still has a lot of work to do, but it's better than anything else. And so we have to keep plotting and do that. And that's justice to me. It's, it's redress. Um, it's being fair. It's the value system that I have, and that's why I love it so much. It's true north to me, um, and and I feel very comfortable in it to try to do the right thing um, for the right reason. 
that's that's justice to me. Next is a panel of guests for my second episode. Judge Carla Brown of the Gwinnett County State Court, Matthew Moffitt of Gray, Rust, St. Amon, Moffitt and Breesk, and Chris Clark of Clark, Smith and Sizemore. You know, I, I tend to go simplistic on something like this. And my definition of justice is really just um, fairness, fairness and accessibility um, from the standpoint of being a judge. Uh, the the most important thing that I can do is to simply be fair. I think following the law comes without saying, um, but you know, consider um, consider that the people in a courtroom, while it may not be of worldwide importance to me or the lawyer, to that person that is there in court, it is the most important thing going on in their lives at the time, and to listen. And to be fair, I think is the the biggest thing that I can do in order to respect um, everyone's right to justice. Oh, and I would say it is an opportunity for any individual, any entity, anybody in our democracy to have their, their issue, their dispute, whatever their problem is, resolved in an unbiased, impartial, rules-based form that then has some oversight responsibility uh, or, uh, beyond that. And if, if we will lose our democracy uh, if we do not continue to provide people the opportunity to have an unbiased, impartial, rules-based form, whether that be a trial court or sometimes another form in administrative procedures, so that people can get their issue uh, resolved. You, you, when you disenfranchise people from that sort of system, uh, you will have lost the democracy. I think justice is the fair and reasonable resolution of a dispute. And we lawyers on all sides and judge in the middle have a professional responsibility and obligation to advance that. Next up is former U.S. Congressman, Mr. George Buddy Darden. Well, I remember taking courses at the University of Georgia and and uh, studying the philosophers and so forth and, and, and so on. And you remember, I, I come pretty close to what uh, Plato said, is that justice requires that is done, which, which ought to be done. And that sounds somewhat simplistic, but it's not something that's, that's out there in a clear formula. And it's not anything that you can, you can always define, kind of like the Supreme Court justice said one time about pornography. Uh, I know it when I see it. And justice is kind of the same way in, the, in, that, um, in that every situation is different. And just because the law says this, uh, that doesn't necessarily mean that's what ought to, ought to happen. And the jury comes about as close to justice as, as, you're going, as you're going to find. And so I think I'd just come back and say justice is what is the right thing and was the right thing done. And that's, that's, that's very simple, but that's about the way I look at it. Up next is Michael B. Terry of Bondurant, Mixon, and Elmore. At the end of the day, really, in my mind, most concepts of justice are incredibly personal and mostly subjective. What do you think is fair? What do you think is fair? Now, we see this a lot in litigation, and here's an example that, that that you get a lot in appellate practice because it's a very rule-bound practice. Um, 
let's take a party who's technically violated the rules. He filed his brief a week late, okay? Uh, and he will argue and truly believe that justice requires ignoring the technicality and focusing on the merits. That is justice. Ignore the violation of the, of the, of the rules and focus on the justice, the merits of the underlying case. While the party on the other side might truly believe, and I've made this argument, that justice means everybody plays by the same rules. Justice means a level playing field, uh, and if you have to enforce the rules even-handedly, enforce them against everyone or not at all. And in some people's minds, that is just. And of course, we all are subject to the, the, the simple fact that it all depends on where we're sitting. Um, what I try and do is, you know, I, I started off with, I want to make my parents proud. Um, I want my parents and my grandparents, uh, you know, if they were told what I did, to say, well, I raised him right. And, and that's sort of my concept of it. Uh, and, um, and then later, I wanted my kids to be proud, to be able to look at what I did in a case, look at what I did in society, look at what I did with respect to these protests, and for my children to be proud of what I did. Uh, and, 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 you know, and hold me up as an example. And that is justice. But in the very end, I think that justice is like obscenity or pass interference. I know it when I see it. Uh, you know, and, uh, you know, it, it is a very personal concept, uh, but it has to be driven by personal conceptions of fairness. Uh, because that that's if if what you're doing if you feel like you know you're winning but it's not fair uh, I mean I have I have had one appeal many years ago where I thought one of the 11th Circuit judges was so unfair to my opponent that I walked out knowing I was going to win and feeling like I wanted to throw up and after that case was over I called that ju that judge and and talked to them about how, what I thought of the treatment of my opponent. I did wait till after the case was over. Though. I will admit that. But, um, it's, if it doesn't feel fair, if it doesn't feel right, if it gives you a queasy feeling in the pit of your stomach, um, that's probably not justice. Next is investigative journalist Joshua Sharp of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Whatever the right thing is, that's what I want to happen. That's all. That's the best answer I can come up with. Whatever the right thing and the just thing is, that's what I hope happens. And I hope that when people look back on the case and and the impact that I, that that my work has had, I hope that they can that everyone can agree that what happened, or or that nearly everyone at least can agree that what happened was the right thing. Next up is John D. Haddon of the Haddon Law Firm. My dad is a uh, minister, and so I grew up, you know, with with him talking about, you know, fairness, and, and I don't know that he used the word justice, but that was kind of the idea. And then my stepdad is a judge, um, then a lawyer. And so I just really think of justice as, as general fairness. Um, you know, I've, I've, I grew up watching um, courtroom, you know, arraignments, things like that in my stepdad's courtroom. And I, I just thought that, you know, it, it, there was just sort of a general notion of fairness and trying to be, be nice to people. And if somebody did something wrong, fix it. 
to make sure they know that it's wrong. But uh, it's definitely not a um, trying to try to necessarily punish people, but just trying to make sure that they know what's right. Next is Professor Eric D. Seagal, professor of law at Georgia State University. Empathy plus fairness. We're never going to get to fairness if there's no empathy. And I think reasonable and, and, and reasonable people can disagree on those issues. So I'm pro-choice all the way down. To me, I have empathy for women who want to terminate their pregnancy. And I think it's only fair to let them terminate their pregnancy prior to viability. But there are people of goodwill who have empathy for the fetus and think it is murdering a person and that it's not fair to murder that person. I don't, I can't privilege my answer. I think I'm right, but I can't privilege it. But if you go through the hoop of empathy and fairness, then we're doing all we can do. It's the people who don't go through those hoops that I don't, sincerely, that I don't think understand what justice is. And that, and that goes to any area of the law. So to me, in a very trite Twitter kind of way, um, if you really consider empathy, and you really consider fairness, then I think your sense of justice will emerge and people in hard cases can reasonably disagree about what's done. But at least think of that whole thing after, I don't know which justice or which president it was, Obama, I guess. Obama came out and said he wanted judges to be, have empathy and he got attacked from all sides. The dumbest thing I've ever heard about. Next, we have another panel featuring Jillian Ferrer Onan of Elevitz, Edwards Onan and Boyline. LLC and Robert G. Wellen of Wellen Family Law. Justice is implementing legal decisions without bias and probably also applies to the political realm, political and legal decisions without without bias and implementing those, ensuring security for everybody. Rob? Well, in the divorce setting, uh, I would define it as when you go to court, and both parties are somewhat dissatisfied. That yes. probably is justice. But I want to kind of turn that a little bit, uh, if I may, uh, to talk about judges in general. And we see over the last several years, uh, they have become so politicized. And I think in terms of our role uh, as lawyers to be certain uh, that uh, we, we defend them and honor them. We expect objectivity from them, and we certainly almost always get objectivity. But in terms of what's going on in this country right now, all of us have an obligation to be sure that the public understands the role of a judge, and that's to be unbiased, objective, and in fact, do justice. Up next is Judge Susan Edline, of the Fulton County State Court. There's a piece of paper that I've had since I graduated from law school. And this is when I went to law school, this was engraved in one of the buildings. And it said that those alone may be servants of the law who labor with learning, courage, and devotion to preserve liberty and promote justice. That has just sort of stayed with me. You want people to leave the courthouse, whether they won or lost, to know that they were treated fairly and that they were heard. Next up, we'll hear from Georgia State Senator Elena Parent. Well, when I think about justice, I think what it means is something that we, we 
say we have in our society and that we give lip service to and kind of strive to, but that we really fail at quite often. And, and the more, you know, reforms we could have that would get us closer to equal justice under the law, the better. I mean, there's the criminal sense, um, you know, as far as justice where, you know, in a perfect society, people would be treated equally, um, no matter their background, economic status, or race. And we know that that's clearly not the case. And then, you know, really, when you would have justice, you would have a level playing field, not just in the criminal side, but also on the civil side. And we and we know that that too is not always the case, but that would be true justice. If, if it were easy to take on a big corporation where those that have a lot of money can't sort of get their way by default as much as they do, simply because they can afford to out litigate someone or just fight so that, you know, an individual plaintiff is worn down. That would be a system that enabled true level playing field, equal justice for, for Americans, both on the criminal and civil side. But we should at least be mindful of the fact that justice, the, the term justice doesn't apply equally to all and incorporate that in the way we think. Next, we'll hear from Greg Parent and Rex Smith of Miles Mediation and Arbitration. My definition is probably different from yours, uh, and, it's, and it's something I bring up often in mediation because uh, the parties will say, I just want justice. I just want what's fair. And I'll remind them that a jury is made up of humans who don't always get it right, and they will never appreciate what you know and appreciate and have experienced. They'll never have on that jury an advocate like you have at your right side who's who's you representing you now and that the best I can do is, is let them know the entirety of possibilities and let them choose the ones that they feel match their risk aversion. I know that's a technical answer, but, um, you know, and, and I don't say this in a base, in a, in a humanless way or with, without tact, but in, in a horrific case, you know, nothing the jury does is going to bring someone back. So I talked to them about, does it, bother you to have to live this day over and over again and, and have to do that for another two years and then live with the potential disappointment that someone doesn't value it like you value because what you lost is priceless. Um, now, it's easier to have that conversation if there is a reasonable settlement on the table. Um, other times I'll say, listen, I won't stand in your way. What they've offered is such a pittance and doesn't represent any remorse, doesn't represent any uh, relationship to the law you might get better relief going forward and fighting it. Um, but, but justice is always a movable target. And it's something that I, I don't speak about until I've spent a lot of time with that plaintiff. And I feel I can understand what it's like to be in their shoes from talking to them, more importantly, listening to them. This big head of mine has big old ears and I hear and pick up everything and I watch everything. Sometimes Robin, um, attorneys like you and, and Lester who do not fear going into a courtroom um, and not saying you two do this because you two are very compassionate with your own clients, but you're so focused on charging that you don't watch that your client twitches every time you say the word trial and that they don't have the, the resolve or the stomach to go forward with you. And sometimes I have to pull attorneys out and go, hey, Mrs. Jones will not be there for you like you think. She, she doesn't want to be here or this is too taxing on her or this is too much of a burden or she just wants closure. She doesn't need this money. And, and that's not where the fight is. She, she could use this money to build a legacy, but she doesn't have this fight in her. So your notion of getting her justice at trial isn't what she needs. That's my read on it. 
And sometimes that helps do it. Other times it might be, you know what? You don't need the money. It's a pittance that they're offering anyway. Go show them. <laughs> and, 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 and you just kind of read that way. But I try not to usher anyone to trial without first exhausting every possible opportunity. I don't know if that answers your question, but it's a nuanced question. It's not an easy yes, no. <laughs> That's why we ask it. <laughs> Rex, how about you? What is your notion of justice or how would you define it? Uh, well, I think it's almost as elusive as um, the pursuit of happiness from the Declaration of Independence. The, uh, but for me, justice comes back to the golden rule, back to Matthew 7, 12, that you individually are doing to others as you would have them do unto you. And that collectively, that the, that the jury is treating this particular person, whether it be the plaintiff or the defendant, as they would want to be treated if they were in that same situation. Um, but that is an extraordinarily hard thing to define. Uh, I, I, I looked on, I think there's 300 different references to justice in the Bible. And one that really uh, I thought was very interesting goes all the way back to Exodus. And it's in Exodus 23. And it talks about not following the crowd, playing to the crowd and, uh, and, and being and showing favoritism to the poor man. And then two paragraphs late, or two verses later, it says, uh, don't deny justice to the poor. Um, but coming back to the golden rule, collectively as a society, uh, whether it's immigration reform, you know, whether it's uh, laws that we pass in the Georgia legislature, but to do what is right, it's righteous. Next up is Jason Lazarus founder of Synergy Settlement Services and the author of The Art of Settlement. You need to, to be heard in whether it's in a courtroom or, you know, in my case, we didn't get there. It was, it was in a mediation being able to sit across the table from a person that, you know, made a mistake, whether it was, I don't think it was intentional or not, but that changed my life. You know, being able to explain how it impacted me and going through that whole process, I, I didn't realize it until after once we settled that there was, there was, you know, catharsism that comes with that because it gives you that opportunity to be heard and, you know, being able to get that sense of closure on it, I think is, is important part of justice, whether it's, you know, you've been wronged in, in the civil sense or in the criminal sense, it's that opportunity to get to get that redress, um, whatever it might be. Next, we'll hear from Mr. Luther Batiste, former national president of the American Board of Trial Lawyers and founding shareholder at Johnson, Toll, and Batiste, PA. First of all, I, I define justice as treating people the way they should be treated. Justice has a particular meaning to me because I grew up in a small town, Orangeburg, South Carolina, that was segregated, and I fought so hard through the civil rights movement to achieve justice. First of all, for African-Americans, when you achieve justice for African-Americans, you achieve justice for everyone. Because in order for us to be a better state, a better city, a better country, we all have to treat each other fairly. We all have to try to achieve justice in how we treat people. I wanted to be a lawyer 
because as I said, Matthew Perry was fighting for justice to free all Americans. And I've spent my entire life trying to make a difference, trying to make Columbia and South Carolina and this country a better place in any way I can by trying to make people do what's right and treat people fairly and to try to make us live up to the ideals of what this country was founded on. Up next is Brian Hara, Kentucky lawyer and author of Bourbon Justice, How Whiskey Law Shaped America. I chose the word justice for the book title because bourbon helped guide the the country from this Wild West or this laissez-faire world where rectifiers could do what they want and put what they want on the labels and could put poison in bottles or other products outside of the bourbon industry. And bourbon, I think, provided justice because it provided consumer protection, because it provided workplace safety laws, because it, it helped grow us into a nation of laws. So, so justice in that sense is consistent with, with how I've approached it in, in the civil litigation world, the, the rule of law, uh, treating everyone the same under the law. Um, and there are undoubtedly some bourbon stories that probably tend more toward the social justice side of the equation. And your question has actually inspired me to start looking into that side as well. Up next, we have Mr. Frank Burns of J. Franklin Burns PC. I was thinking about the question and thinking about, well, you know, what is justice? What's the definition of justice? And I, I mean, was going to go look it up. I never did because I look at justice as kind of a, as a concept. I, I look at justice as the top of a mountain, the, the top of a steeple, the top of the tallest building in the world. It's just the pinnacle. It's the ideal where we all want to go at some point in time. We want to get there. We want to get where there is justice and we just want to get to that point to be at that pinnacle. And it's, you know, I guess it's the Pledge of Allegiance, you know, one nation under God, indivisible with liberty and justice for all, justice for all. And that's what we, we just need to, to try to attain that. And as lawyers, we're in the judicial system. But I think it's just an ideal way up on the top of the mountain. We need to look at it. We need to try to get there as best we can. In every one of our cases and every day, really, every day that we work and every day of our lives. So that's how I feel about justice. Next is presiding judge Stephen Lewis A. Dillard, 73rd judge of the Court of Appeals of Georgia. In my view, as an appellate judge, justice means um, that a lot of justice should take place at the trial level. I think that's really where you have real people, witnesses, cross-examinations, a jury of your peers. Uh, I think you both know and I say this as an originalist, I am a staunch defender of the right to a jury trial. And in Georgia, I think we have even a more robust right to jury trial than we do at the federal level. We say that the right to jury trial in Georgia is inviolate. Um, and I think Georgia historically has, and I think our founders historically cared very deeply about the right to a jury trial. That to me, a lot of justice is, it may not be sexy to talk about process, but process matters greatly in terms of ensuring justice. Um, and then in terms of my judicial philosophy, once again, I think um, for me, justice means applying the same approach in every case to every person, regardless of their background, who they are, what their socioeconomic status is, race, gender, you name it, anything you wanna name. I want every person that appears before my court 
to have confidence that they are going to be given fair treatment and we're going to have deliberate consideration uh, and thoughtful consideration of their appeal. Uh, even if they don't agree with it, the greatest praise anybody can give me is if, if, if somebody walks up off the street, I've had it had a couple of times, not so much clients, but lawyers. And they say, you ruled against me, but I understand why I lost. I don't, you know, I, I you, you explained it and I understand why you, you, you did what you did. And I, I want people to have faith in the process that I use as a judge that my court uses to come to our decisions. Next, we have Mr. Lance Cooper of the Cooper firm. But I'm going to talk about it in the context of the law. And, and really, I, there's two separate concepts of justice that I would like to define. The first is restorative justice. And that is, uh, I would define it as making things right for someone who is harmed by another. Uh, and, and what we do, we, our job is to make, do what we can to make things right for someone who's harmed by another. And that's the restorative, that's the compensatory aspect of justice. And as, as you know, as lawyers, that's really all we can do oftentimes. But then there's also uh, you know, retributive justice, and this deals more in criminal cases, but it also is in like the GM case, the punitive damages case. And I think it's the reasonable and appropriate punishment of wrongdoing. In other words, uh, retributive justice in a case such as uh, Melton, there should have been reasonable and appropriate punishment of the wrongdoing. The question is, was there reasonable, appropriate punishment? I don't believe so, but there should have been, uh, given the magnitude of the harm. And last but not least is Mrs. Paula Frederick, General Counsel of the State Bar of Georgia. My predecessor, Bill Smith, used to hate it when I said I just wanted things to be fair. He's like, nobody guarantees anything's going to be fair. And I was like, well, they don't, but it should be. (laughs) And I really, I don't know, I guess that for me, and, and for me, what that means is sort of a level playing field. That means, you know, in a state like Georgia, where, you know, I'm now part of the good old boy system. I have to admit it. I know all the lawyers in the state and I knew their daddies at this point because I've gotten older. Um, and, and you see how that looks to somebody who's not a part of it, to a regular citizen coming into a courtroom where everybody seems to know each other and their buddies and you're the stranger and things don't go your way and you're just convinced it wasn't fair. And so I, I, I don't know what we, what we do about that. But for me, justice is fairness and a level playing field and people being treated equally and playing by the rules that mean that they're colorblind, um, all of that. Thank you for listening to See You in Court, brought to you by the Georgia Civil Justice Foundation and the Georgia Institute of Technology. Please subscribe to this podcast and consider writing a review. You may find related documents to this week's episode on our website, cuincourt.podbean.com. Please send any questions, suggestions, or ideas to cuincourtpodcast at gmail.com. The producer of this podcast is Raz Misher. We thank Noreen Hassan, Associate Professor and Director of Outreach and Community Engagement of the Georgia Institute of Technology School of Literature, Media, and Communication, and the Georgia Tech students who help bring you this podcast. I'm Fred Smith, Executive Director of the Georgia Civil Justice Foundation. You may learn more about the foundation at fairplay.org. On behalf of Robin Fraser clark and Lester Tate, Until our next episode, we'll see you in court.